Have you ever known someone that was constantly nice, kind to your face, but likes to talk about you behind your back? Have you ever known anyone like that? I would imagine if you've been a human on planet Earth long enough, you've had someone speak negatively about you behind your back. It happens. It's part of our condition. What would we call that person? Now, remember, you're in church before you yell anything out, but what are some things we might call such a person? Hypocrite. Yeah. Maybe two-faced. Maybe that's a word that comes up. That was one that came immediately to my mind as I was thinking through this earlier this week. That idea of being one person in one setting and a completely different person in another setting. But as I thought through this image, this idea, this metaphor of someone being two-faced, I begin to realize that that is a lie. That in reality, there's no such thing as two-faced. One of the two faces is a lie. Like, there's no such thing as somebody who has two different personalities. Now, I mean, there is actual disorders with that sort of thing, but for the most part, there is no such thing as someone who has two different personalities. Instead, what you're seeing in one case is actually not who they really are. They're pretending to be someone else. Now, it might actually be said, as I was thinking about this even further, that both faces are a lie, and somebody might be somebody completely different than who they're willing to show anybody else. But if you meet someone that's two faces, what you're really meeting is one person who might be legitimately them and the other who is just something they create to make them more acceptable or likable. One of the two faces is a lie. Israel was living a lie, and Amos was God's response to that lie. God calling them out. As we talked about last week, Amos is a tough book. Amos is a book directed at Israel. And Amos zeroed in on Israel over the first chapter and then into the beginning of chapter 2, where we'll pick up here in a moment. Slowly, again, targeting or closing in on the nation of Israel by picking on all of Israel's neighbors, showing God's judgment against them, geographically drawing an X and a circle around the people of Israel and eventually falling solely upon them. One thing that we didn't talk about last week in the way that Amos approached Israel is that one fact of the matter, one thing that shows up about who Israel is, is that although they viewed themselves as a chosen people, a unique people, and really it's more than just the way they viewed themselves, it's who God actually declared them to be, it's who they were created to be, a chosen people, a unique people, uniquely tasked with carrying out God's plan to bless the nations in the world. Even though that's who they were, by including them at the end of a list of eight countries, Amos, or God through Amos, was basically saying, you're behaving just like the rest of the world. And so you're going to get judged just like the rest of the world. Israel was set apart to bless the nations, but they were actually actually taking advantage of the nations, taking advantage of the powerless, taking advantage of anyone they could, as we'll see in the passage that we're about to read, not being a blessing the way that they, for the reason that they were put on earth. So this morning, what we're going to read from the book of Amos is going to, I think, one way to communicate it, one way, one line to put in your heart, put in your mind to remember, is that God prefers righteous living to righteous posing. Now, remember that when God speaks a word of judgment, it just might be for us. That's where we focused last week. And so during this sermon, consider what God might be speaking to you, not just your neighbor or not even your neighbor, really. 
Not even someone who's not here, but what God might be speaking to you today, even if that truth is difficult. If we're honest, we've all likely been posers at one point or another in our lives. I will certainly admit to doing so. So behaving in one way that is not true to the person that I was, to the person that I was becoming, but God's judgment has not yet come. We can change that. We can continue to respond to the calling of God and move closer to him and who he would like us to be. In Amos's language, we can let justice roll and righteousness flow. So let's learn from the sin of Israel and God's response to that sin in Amos's chapter 2 and 5. We're going to be in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and then Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 after that. So if you brought your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and mark those places. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. But before we jump into Amos chapter 2, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. And God, we thank you for your mercy proceeding to the thousandth generation. God, of loving us when we are unworthy. God, of giving us what we do not deserve and extending that to us through the grace of your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. God, we rejoice in that. Yeah, God, at the same time, we mourn over the fact that that sacrifice was necessary. God, that as your servant Isaiah said, it is by his stripes that we are healed. So God, we come to you, God, seeking to be a people who repent from a lifestyle apart from you. And pursue you with everything that we have. And so, God, I pray that you would show us how to do that during these next few moments. God, that you would open up the words of Scripture to us. God, that your Spirit uh, would interpret and show us how to apply these words. God, so that we leave here changed. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, where we left off last week. We read verse 6 last week beginning what God had to say directly to Israel themselves after picking on the seven neighbors around them. Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They sell the righteous for silver, Amos said. Now, there's metaphor about what's actually going on behind the scenes that we need to dig into a little bit to know what Amos is talking about. Selling the righteous for a pair for selling the righteous for silver, excuse me, probably meant that those in power were likely paying off judges, those who would render verdicts, so that they would render guilty verdicts against people who were actually righteous, aka innocent. And the whole point behind that was that they were also probably buying those falsely accused and given into imprisonment into slavery. 
And so they were making sure that people who had little means, who had no way to fight back against the system, that they were put in subjugation to the system so that eventually they could become their slaves. So they would pay off judges to render guilty verdicts, even though people were innocent, and then put those innocent people in service under slavery. And they sold the needy for a pair of sandals, Amos goes on to say. Likewise, the rich and the powerful were taking people again into slavery over minuscule debts, debts as low as the cost of a pair of sandals. I was in Walmart yesterday. I saw a pair of flip-flops for 98 cents, 98 cent flip-flops. That's like a day flip-flop, right? That's one you want to, if you just want to have something on your foot for one day, you go to Walmart and buy a 98 cent pair of flip-flops. But think of, think of the cheapest shoe you can imagine. That's the cheapest one I can imagine off the top of my head. I can't think of one cheaper. Or think of even a moderately priced pair of sandals. You can go and you can get a pair of Nike sliders for like 20 bucks today. I actually saw you can get, it's 20 or $30. They have this new Nike sandal. Has anybody a, a Nike sandal fan that has a fanny pack on the part that goes over your foot? It's a throwback to the 90s and 80s fanny pack. So if you're interested in that, there you go. But even that was just 30 bucks. Uh, I know that because I told Cheryl to get me a pair for Father's Day. That's how I know how much they cost. Um, anyway, it's either here nor there. But it's a very low-priced shoe, right? Now, it would be one of the only shoes they had then, obviously, but it was one of the lowest-priced things that a person would need. Something, a, a minuscule debt. And, and they would take this minuscule debt against a person who would be unable to pay it back because they had no means, again, to pay for themselves, no means to save themselves. And they would say, okay, you want to pay your debt back? You want to pay your $20 debt back? Then you're going to come be my slave. They would sell the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, the rich and the powerful were looking for any way that they could to take advantage of the poor and the powerless and turn them into free labor, a.k.a. slaves. Let me remind you once again, going back to Genesis 12, when God called Abraham to be the father of many nations, Israel was called to bless the world to bless each other and all of the nations, yet in this setting they are more content to subjugate anyone they could. They have become a curse to the nations and not the blessing that God intended them to be. Amos continues, they trample the head of the poor into the dust and turn away or turn aside, I should say, the way of the afflicted. The rich and the powerful of Israel treat the poor and powerless with contempt in all they do, treating them as if they are just dust underfoot. And they turn them aside, meaning that they actively work against the poor and powerless to keep them from moving up the socioeconomic ladder. They are putting things in their way, like judges that they have paid off, like minuscule debts that they push, that they sell them into slavery for, putting things in the way of people trying to make their lives better, trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. No, you need to stay in your lane, stay where you're at, because if you get up to where I am, it might make what I am less valuable. And so they make sure to keep the poor downtrodden and oppressed. And it gets worse. A man and his father go into the same girl, Amos says. You know exactly what that means. It was against God's law for a father and his son to be with the same woman. Not only that, this sort of union, sexual union, was expected only to take place within the bonds of marriage. But when we consider this in context and we realize that Amos is talking about Israel's sin against the powerless, when we look deeper into probably what's going on, this action becomes even more profane when we realize the reality that this girl was likely a slave forced into prostitution. 
someone who herself had been sold, even though she was righteous, who had a guilty verdict rendered against her so that she could be used in such a way. Someone who owed a minuscule debt to someone in power and was sold into this sort of slavery so that she could be used in this way. You even wonder if father and, 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 and son split the cost in order to save money to devalue her even more in the way that they treated her. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. The law of God was built to protect people who became indebted beyond their ability to repay, so much so that there is a stipulation in the law that if an outer garment is taken from someone as a pledge of a debt that they'll repay, in other words, if I owe you money but I don't have it, I can give you my coat so that you'll know that I will pay that back. If that were to happen, the law stipulates that you have to give me my coat back by the end of the day. Why? Because in that day, that was my only covering, my only protection from the elements of the world, especially for people who probably slept outside. That was true for many of the people in this day, let alone the poor and the powerless. But what Israelites were doing, the rich and the powerful Israelites were doing, it was they were taking garments and pledge, and instead of giving them back as the law of God commanded them to, they were keeping them for themselves making sure that they were extra warm, that they were extra protected, that they had a few layers where their destitute brothers and sisters had none, to the point that they even laid down on these garments at the altar of God. They brought it into the way that they worshipped God, profaning God's holy name in many different ways. And in the house of God, Amos ends this passage in verse 8. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. Fines were a part of the law, but they were meant to bring restitution, to make things right, to set things back to equal, to reset things the way they were before the fine was imposed. But rich and powerful Israelites were using the law and fining people so that they could make a profit for their own enjoyment. As with the garments, they mixed this sin with worship and being in God's place, being in God's house, the temples that they had built that they were told not to or or that they shouldn't have in the first place back when they first separated from the southern kingdom. But they were going into these places of worship and they were drinking the wine that they had got by taking advantage of people who had less power than them. So you see the sin of Israel is deep. Now, it's interesting where Amos focuses his attention when he calls out the sin of Israel. We could think of a lot of things that Amos would go after, and he does in the rest of the book, idolatry and things like that. But what he first focuses on in in going after Israel and God moving through him to to speak prophetically to the people of Israel about their sinfulness and their distance from God is the way that they treat people who have less than them is the way that they treat people who are powerless. Does that sound like anybody else in Scripture? When Jesus said, here's the way you tell the difference between the sheep and the goats. Here's the way you tell the difference between the people who are living the way that I have called them to and the, way, and the, way, and the people living the way that I have not called them to. How do you know the difference? When you see somebody who's hungry or thirsty and they get fed, when you see somebody who's naked and they get clothed or sick and in prison and somebody goes to visit them, the people who are going and caring for those people, those are the people that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the people who said, what are you talking about, Jesus? I never saw you hungry or thirsty. I never saw you sick or in prison. I never knew to do any of those things. Jesus would reply, whatever you did or didn't do to the least of these, you did to me. 
Jesus was echoing prophets like Amos when he talked about the way that we see deep inside of who we really are and whether or not we have truly given ourselves to God is many times the way that we treat other people and not just any other people. We can treat other people that are just like us fine all we want to all day long, but the way we treat people who can give nothing back to us, who cannot materialistically enrich our lives in any way. This is the prophetic word that Amos spoke to the house of Israel. And in the remainder of chapter 2, Amos goes on continuing to speak for God to the Israelites, reminding them that they did all this despite the facts of what God had done for them, reminding them or, or informing them, I should say, of the judgment that is going to come. And he continues in that thread throughout the rest of the book. And so that's why we're going to skip real quickly to Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, to see an example of God's response to Israel's sin. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. And this, again, is the scripture upon which the song you heard earlier was based. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Again, this is Amos speaking for God. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God does not mince words, especially through the prophets. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Hate is not a word that was chosen randomly or chosen quickly. It was a word that expresses a great emotional reaction to something. If you've ever hated someone or something, you know that kind of guttural feeling that I'm talking about, where it, 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 it's something that you can't get out of your mind, something that you can't like, distract yourself away from. Uh, anytime you think about this situation or this person, your, your stomach turns. God, through Amos, tells the people of Israel that when he looks at their worship, he has that response. His stomach turns. Because of Israel's sin and their mixing of that sin with worship. Again, remind yourselves of the the passage we just read. How they would profane God's holy name by taking garments, giving them pledge that they were supposed to give back, and laying on them in the house of God. That they would drink the wine of those that they had found in the house of God. Mixing their sin with the worship of God. Amos is telling them, God speaking through Amos, that God hates and despises their going through the motions in worship. God turns his back on their praise, refusing to listen. Again, the imagery is strong. God is listening to their praises, and he turns their back and closes his ears, wishing not to hear things that are offered in praise. Songs and hymns, chants, repetition of, 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 of the law that they knew, Probably things very similar to what we do today. Now, hopefully we're doing it in a different heart. But I was thinking through, even as we were singing hymns this morning, I was thinking through the hymn, Change My Heart, O God. It's a beautiful hymn. Not only is it a beautiful hymn, it's a hymn that has much 
theology behind it. Change my heart, God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, God. May I be like you. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Mold me and make me. Change me, God. You, the boss, take complete control over me. Mold me in exactly what you want me to be and make me look like you. This is what we cry out when we sing that song to God. I would imagine that the songs of the Israelites were not much different. Yet God turned their back, turned his back to their praise. Our worship means nothing if it's done in a two-faced way. As a matter of fact, it might even be worse than nothing. One of my favorite restaurants, Mexican restaurants, when we lived in Bront, was in San Angelo, where uh, Jordan is living now, that she talked about a moment ago. And the name of the place was Mejor Que Nada. Is there any Spanish people in the place? You know that means better than nothing. I thought it was a great name for a Mexican restaurant. But some things are worse than nothing. And in this case, perhaps the kind of worship that Israel was offering was worse than nothing. Corporate worship on Sunday morning should be a small percentage of worship in the life of a Jesus follower. To worship essentially means to express adoration and to ascribe worth, worthship to God. Singing is but one way among many to do that. We also worship God when we serve humanity in his name. Which is why God, through Amos, says that instead he would like to see justice roll down like waters and righteousness flow, or righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Justice, that word, it means equality, equal treatment for all mankind and, and for all humankind. Righteousness, living in a right and God honoring way, and it should come as an ever flowing stream with consistency. Imagine the climate to which Amos was writing. They were fully aware that there were water holes that sometime during the year had water in them and sometime of the year dried up. We in Texas can be aware of that as well, especially where I'm from in West Texas. Farm ranchers would dig tanks. They would fill up during part of the year so that the cattle would have something to drink. And eventually, if, if not that year, after a couple of years of drought, that, that tank would go dry. We're all aware of that. We've lived long enough. This is not what Amos is talking about. He says he wants justice and righteousness to flow like an ever-flowing stream, one with consistency that does not end, one that doesn't just show up when it's convenient, one that doesn't just show up when it's comfortable, but a stream that is ever-flowing as compared to a water hole that only receives rain at times and then dries up at times. God prefers righteous living to righteous posing. God would rather his followers serve him with the works of their hands and the words of their mouth, not just one or the other. Too often in our world today, we are eloquent in the way that we praise God. We are profuse in the words that we offer to our God, both spoken and in song. But when it comes to our actions, giving feet and hands to those words, we often come up lacking. Encountering a holy God in worship should transform the way that we live. It should be, it not shouldn't be, it is impossible to truly worship God and not serve him by the way that we live. Put it this way. If you leave an encounter with God only to mistreat those created in his image, did you really encounter God? Or was it just a God of your own making? Imagine a marriage in which one spouse openly states, I'm going to be faithful to you most of the time. 
but there's going to come a time or if there's this certain person that comes looking that I'm probably going to have to be unfaithful for a few moments, for a day, for a week. Maybe just give me a free pass one week a year, but the rest of the time I'll be faithful. Is that a faithful marriage? No, of course not. It's like a tank that sometimes has water but sometimes doesn't. You can't rely on it. If you know that there may be water there or there might not be water there, you're probably not going to go there looking for water. Instead, you're going to go somewhere where you know there's water. Somewhere where you know you can count on. God prefers righteous living to righteous posing. What we do here is important. I mean like right now. What we're doing here is important. The, The corporate time of praise is important. We come together and we we share our lives with one another. We give encouragement when encouragement is needed. Many of you have been through portions of your life when you needed to be picked up and those in this very room picked you up. Likewise, some of you have been in situations in your life where you needed to have a word of conviction spoken upon you and perhaps that word was offered by someone in this room. What we do here is needed. It is important We identify ourselves as a body. That's a biblical definition for who we are, an assembly dedicated to the purpose of Christ in the world, a unified group under the lordship of Jesus, and we praise him together. We come here together to remind ourselves and the world around us that we belong to Jesus Christ together as a body, that we're not in this alone. It is a corporate act. God put us together for a reason. And when we offer praise to him together, lifting our voices and our hearts in unison, something beautiful happens. What we do here is important. When we study and we learn the truths of Scripture, it is important. Things like FBI and Sunday school and all of the different groups that we have, they are important because they teach us the truth of the precepts of God. They teach us the truth of the love of God echoing through the words of his scripture to us today so that we can put them in our own hearts and then share them with the hearts of others that we come into contact with. And at its most basic level is an opportunity for us to give back to the God who has given us so much. A debt we could never repay that God has not asked us to but one that we give back anyway because of the joy in our hearts, because of what he has done for us. What we do here is important. But if what we do here stops here, it's useless. When you worship God, is it an outflow of the rest of your life? Or are you being two-faced? Worship God with all that you have. Be transformed by God and live for God again with all that you have. This is what we do during this hour, during our times with one another. We worship God and we allow him hopefully to transform us in such a way that it does not stop here. Let me tell you something you already know. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why there is a rise of unbelieving people in our world today. When I say unbelieving, I mean people who are going to swear off religion altogether. They're going to be what, what you may have seen if you've read Christian literature or Christian, um, Christian polls, the rise of the nuns, people who don't identify as anything. And it's certainly moving away from Christianity, my generation and younger. 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying all of this is, 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 is not their fault. It's, it's up to each person whether or not they choose to believe in God through Jesus Christ. But one of the reasons why we are doing poorly in our mission to make disciples of all nations is because we are becoming, whether we like it or not, and whether we in this room are responsible for it or not, we in the, in the world today, the church in the world today, is becoming more and more known for being two-faced. We're saying one thing publicly, but then something coming out all of a sudden that we have done that we tried to keep hidden for years and years and years to undermine everything that we've done instead of just being open and honest with everyone. And, and instead of, uh, uh, of not hiding behind our worship, instead of not, not taking our own sinfulness in, in, in our service to God. What am I saying? What I'm saying is, sometimes I fail at this. And sometimes the people at the highest positions of leadership in the church today fail at this. Is that we come into these kinds of settings, and we say these kinds of words, but then when we get out of this setting, we live a completely different set of circumstances. A completely different set of values. Just like the people of Israel in the day of Amos did. Again, that's why Amos included them in all of the nations. You're just like everybody else was his implicit statement. You're acting, acting just like Edom, just like Tyre, just like Gaza. You're acting just like them, so you're going to get judged just like them. If someone met the church of Jesus Christ outside of the building that we call the church, would they know that we are a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Would they know that we are a part of what the Bible seems to say is the most powerful group of people on the planet. And when I say powerful, I don't mean the way that we can subjugate others. I mean the way that we can pour ourselves out for the sake of other people, the way that Jesus did. Would they know that we are a part of an organization that was founded by someone who was willing to give up himself for others, who was willing to go be around tax collectors and prostitutes, regardless of what the religious and powerful said about him, so that they could know the love of his Father God? Would they know that we follow this man named Jesus who was willing to debase himself first by simply becoming a human being and second to get on his knees to get on his knees and serve those, even the one he knew was going to betray him and lead to his death? Would they know that we belong to that Jesus? Would they know that we belong to that Jesus who respected people no matter where they came from, no matter whether they were Israelite or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free? Would they know that we belong to that Jesus who was willing to, even though it was taboo, approach the Samaritan woman at the well by himself and tell her the truth of the gospel of Jesus so that she might be saved from a life of wondering? Would they know that we belong to that Jesus if they met us outside of this walls? Too often, the only reason why people know that we're Christians is because we go to church, the place that we worship. What we do here is important, but if what we do here stops here, it's useless. And I hope you hear this not as a word of judgment, but as a word of encouragement. Because again, God's judgment has not yet fallen. God has not come to collect the debt. God has not come yet to set everything right. We still have the opportunity to respond in faith and to be the kind of body that God called us to be all the way back in Genesis 12, whose descendants are as numerous as the sand on the shore and who will be a blessing to the nations. 
That is what God called Israel to be. Israel failed and God took their lot. He gave it back, of course, and he wants to restore them again someday. But the same is true for us. This is who God called us to be. And we have the opportunity right now. We have the power right now. What are we doing with it? Are we using it for our own enjoyment, even in our houses of worship? Or are we using the power and authority that God has allowed us to have so that we might reach out to those who are powerless, to those who are in need, oppressed and subjugated? What are we doing with what God has given us? And what are we doing with what we do here? My deep hope is that when God hears us praise his name, that he listens with a smile on his face. But I'm also humble enough to know that there are times when I sing, change my heart, oh God, that I don't really mean it. And that should cause us some humble shaking. Realization that God hates that sort of thing. His scripture says that. Instead, let justice and righteousness flow. Let the love of God flow through you. Instead of being two-faced, be one-faced, single-minded for the gospel of Jesus Christ, both here and in the world. We don't have to worry about any of this other stuff. During our time of invitation this morning, I pray again that you look inwardly that you allow God to speak to you, even though it's a difficult word. Look, I've, I've, I've joked with everybody that I've talked to about this, this series, like, why did I pick Amos? There's so many other books that are happy that I could have picked. In my study, it's been one of struggle, because I struggle this, with this myself, of, of hoarding and keeping the gospel for myself. I know it's not easy. I know it's difficult. But let yourself go there. Let God convict you. Because the Israelites refused to let that happen. They would say, no, God, you know, no, Amos, you're full of it. Go away. We're fine on our own. Don't be that hard-hearted. Instead, let the words of God convict you so that they might work change in your life. And, and, and find and look for places in your life where you say one thing, but you do another. Or you, you, you pretend to give God this part of your life, but you don't. Or, or you say you love and worship God, yet you treat these, whoever these are, people in your life with contempt. Let God lay that on your heart even now during this time of invitation. If you need to pray about that or anything else, I'm here to do that with you this morning. The altar is open if you would like to pray there. Let's go ahead and stand and and, and sing together. I'm going to pray first and then we'll sing together and you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your spirit. God, we thank you for the conviction of your spirit. God, we thank you for the truth of your words, even when they're hard. God, may we be a people who are known as ones who both proclaim truth and live truth. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.